to start by reading again 2 Peter. This is chapter 1, 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So last week we looked at this passage and we walked through it and explained uh, what it meant. And Peter here is, is teaching us, helping us to realize that the message that he has for us, this was not a human invention, this was not a myth, this was not legend, this comes from them as eyewitnesses. But not only that, not just that there were good human eyewitnesses, but that the Holy Spirit uh, was behind the production of the Word of God, of the scriptures that were given to us. And therefore, we have something that's even, even more certain if we have the Word of God. Because this was not, as it says here, something that comes from someone's own interpretation. This wasn't human beings taking their best guess, trying to interpret, I think this is what God is like. I think this is what he wants. Interpreting that on their own, human writers did write these books, but behind them was the work of the Holy Spirit, guiding them. And it says in verse 21, it says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we saw last week that that, that word for carried along was the same word that is used at times of the, the wind pushing a sailboat, pushing it along and directing it where it ought to go. And so what we have here in Scripture is uh, the Word of God. There's dual authorship. The, there are humans that wrote it, but it ultimately was the Holy Spirit superintending and directing it so that what was written is exactly what God wanted written. And it's down to the very words. It is to all of the words. And they are words that are uh, inspired by God or God breathed. And therefore, this is the word of God. And when the word of God speaks, it is God speaking to us. So we talked about that last time. And before we move on to this next section next week, and we get into chapter 2, it's going to be talking about false teachers and false teaching. A really important, really interesting section that we're be going to be diving into starting next week. I want to realize that God has given us a foundation so that we do not need to fall into this false teaching. And the more, the more that we are convinced of what Scripture is, and we view it in the right way, and we're looking at it, that's what's going to keep us from falling into this false teaching. So today, what we're going to be looking at, we're going to stay in basically 2 Peter 1, 19-21 is our key verse, but now we're going to be talking about five attributes of Scripture. Five characteristics that are true of inspired scripture. And because it is inspired, because it is God-breathed, these things are true. And this is a list that has, uh, many theologians have used this, sometimes in slightly different order, slightly different form. I'm going to give it to you with, with five of these attributes. And I'll give you the overview here. as necessity, authority, inerrancy, in some works, they include inerrancy as part of authority. I'm going to break it out because it is so important. Perspicuity and sufficiency. When you look at that list, you might think, perspicuity? What is, that sounds like perspiration. What are we talking about, the sweatiness of Scripture? No, just hang on, we'll explain what that means. And each of these are incredibly important. If I had put these in a different order, we could have used the acronym SPAIN to remember them. Okay, But I think this order makes more sense as we walk through them. But uh, let me give you that as a device. I, I would hope that you would maybe memorize you know, what these five things are. And you could use SPAIN to remember each of them. So from later in the day, you can think back and uh, remember uh, all five of these. I will be, I will be well pleased. So let's talk about the first one, the, the necessity of Scripture. 
the necessity of Scripture. Imagine that you were born in a small room with no windows, and there were no doors, nothing comes in or out, and you could only guess what was outside of the room. But you would never know unless someone from the outside sent you some sort of a message. And that is why Scripture is is necessary for us. We need revelation from the outside. We need revelation, communication from God. Or else we are are in darkness. As Scripture is light into the darkness, into this dark world. And so when we think about what Scripture is uh, and revelation from God, uh, it is God is the one that is the, uh, the, where this is originating from, and it is him bringing this down to us, communicating to it to us. This is not discovery. This is not us starting out and trying to figure out what we can, what we can learn, what we can uncover and discover. No, God is the one revealing this to us, and it is absolutely necessary. So when we talk about the necessity of Scripture, we can define it like this, that Scripture is necessary for salvation, for a clear understanding of God, his will, and our world. For all of these things, we can't have a a clear understanding of any of this uh, without Scripture. It's absolutely necessary. Years ago, when I was in charge of discipleship at at another church, uh, there was um, some uh, youth leaders for a a kids youth group program uh, for a short while and there were leaders that I, I did not put into place but I was in charge of overseeing them. And at one point I met with these leaders to see how it was going and I asked them, hey, how is uh, the, the curriculum that I gave you? How is, how is that working out? And uh, the man that was the primary teacher said, well, we, we haven't been using the curriculum. So, well, all right. Um, thinking to myself, never, you never talked to me about this, never you know, said you could not use it, but I, I'm hoping for the best at this point. So, okay, you're not using the curriculum. Uh, what are you doing? Are you just doing a Bible study? Are you working through Scripture? And the man said to me, uh, no, we're, we're not really doing that. I'm, I'm basically just teaching with uh, stories from my life. So, oh, um, and again, I'm still trying to hope for the best here. I said, you mean like you're looking at some uh, scripture passages and then you're using stories from your life to, to, to explain those passages or to, to illustrate them? He said, no, we're, we're not using the Bible at all. I think that's going to turn off the kids. If we use that, they, they won't want to come back. That's just going to turn them off. Plus, I think that I can, the stories from my life are just as useful to teach these kids as, as scripture. And I, <laughs> at this point, I'm, I'm floored. And I'm thinking, no, this is, we had a long discussion, let's just say. <laughs> I said, no, using the Bible is, this is not negotiable. Okay, if you want to stay in this role, you need to communicate them uh, to them this, this book. You may have some nice stories, but that is not the word of God. Scripture is what is necessary. And the man balked at this, and well, let's just say it didn't work out for them in this position. Um, but I think a lot of people have this idea that we can get the same truth from our own rational thinking or from other sources. No, Scripture is absolutely necessary. There are things that we are just, we're not going to know unless we look at what God has revealed to us through his, his special revelation here. And even if there are some things that we could know in an unclear way, we won't know them in a full and clear way unless we have Scripture. Now, there is what is called general revelation. And so there is a general revelation that is from God and it's through creation and through this world. And there are some things that uh, humanity can, can draw from this. If you study Romans chapter 1, you'll see that uh, everyone deep down knows that God exists. It straight out says this. And it knows that there's just basics, that there's some kind of God that he must be powerful, and that we are accountable to him. But it's limited. There's a limited amount that we can learn from just this world and observing it and how we're wired to know that God exists and to look in this world and see that that there has to be some kind of designer. There has to be some kind of God behind this. As much as we try to suppress that knowledge and, and pretend that it's not there. But it's limited. It is not enough for 
salvation, first of all. And a passage that teaches this is Romans 10, 13 through 17. A great passage that talks about salvation and how it's freely given to us. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In context, the Lord here, this is specifically Jesus. That you're, you're saved by calling upon him. It's not by, by doing good works, but that if you, in faith, you, you turn to him and you call on him to save you from your sin and what you deserve, that he will save you. But then it goes on and says, How then will they call on him who they have not believed? You have to believe in order to call upon him, to trust in him to save you. And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? The implied answer is that you can't. You're not going to call on God. You're not going to call on Jesus the Lord unless you've heard about him first. And how are they to hear without someone preaching, without communicating this word to them, the gospel message? So scripture is essential for salvation. Uh, it doesn't mean that everyone necessarily has a paper copy of the Bible, but it might be preached to them, proclaimed to them, taught to them. And otherwise, you're not going to know all this just from looking at the world. You could look and see some beautiful mountains or uh, you know, look at the, the just intricacy of your own uh, your, your hand and realize there has to be a designer. But you're not from this going to realize that, oh, well, I'm a sinner and the Son of God came down and became uh, incarnate, became the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, and he lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross in the place of sinners like me who trust in him for their salvation and then rose from the dead and is victorious. You're not going to know that just by, by looking at the mountain and all of this. But we learn this from the Word of God. So the Word of God, it's um, essential, uh, necessary for salvation, and for a clear understanding of God, um, and I said, and his will in our world. And a lot of people are confused about God's will. They're making it up what they think pleases God, when if they read scripture, they can tell this is what God tells us. You can look at the world, and um, we can learn some things about it, but we're not even going to understand ourselves accurately, or this world we live in, unless we realize the Bible's storyline. This world was created good. It was created uh, upright. But then because of sin, we now live in a world that is fallen, that is broken because of human sin. And there will be a day when God puts that right. But right now we live in that, uh, that in-between time where we have a, a world that was good, but it is uh, badly broken because of human sin. And that explains so much. Truth about God that we wouldn't know. I think of it like this, you know, if you were at home, and let's say this, this morning the sun comes up, but you have the blinds closed in your, uh, in your bedroom, but it's letting some light through there. It's, it's translucent. You can tell that it's, it's daylight outside, but you can't tell what's out there. You can't tell what the weather is like yet. You can't tell, you know, what birds are in the trees or all these different things because you, you got the blinds closed. So there's kind of, you can tell that there's light, but you don't have a, a clear picture so just general revelation without the Bible is, is kind of like we can tell that there's something out there. The, the, the sun is out. But when we have scripture, it's made clear. This is like looking through a transparent uh, window where we can see the world, we can see things clearly. Uh, in fact, um, John Calvin describes scripture as like glasses that you can put on to see the world. That without scripture, everything, if you need glasses, and I wear contacts and a lot of people wear glasses, and you can kind of see, but everything's a mess. And because of our limitations, because of our sinfulness that we have that, that corrupts the way we see things, uh, we don't see things the way that we ought to. We don't see life the way we ought to. We don't interpret it correctly. But we put on the glasses of scripture, we see this world clearly. So it is necessary for all these things. It's necessary for, because of this, the Christian life. And that's why Jesus told us in Matthew 4, 4, but he answered, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we need God's word. It's, it's not just an optional thing. If you want to grow in the Christian life, if you want to be sustained in the Christian life, we need this truth and we need to, to stay in it. So that's the first attribute we look at, the, the necessity of God. Now each of these we're going to have to go through pretty quickly. This message is an overview of this. 
And putting these together, I realized, wow, one day I'd love to come back and do a whole series where we can do like a full message on each of these and really flesh it out more and show the, the scriptural underpinnings of each of them. But overview for you today. Next one is authority. So we have the, uh, the authority of God's word. Now, some people treat the Bible as if it is just a fallible collection of human wisdom. In fact, I once uh, <clears throat> read an article in the, the Huffington Post. Um, a professor of religion wrote, and this is a quotation. Uh, the, the person wrote, quote, the Bible hates homosexuality, so what? And this professor frankly admitted that the biblical writers constantly disapprove of homosexual relationships. However, she counseled, the article goes on, other same-sex advocates to stop trying to force the Bible to approve of that, which it clearly doesn't. And in a way, that's refreshing because there's a lot of uh, people that are trying to you know, claim that, oh, the Bible actually is okay with this. But this professor of religion just admitted, no, the Bible is clearly not okay with this. But instead, this, was, uh, this um, professor of religion's approach is to recognize that uh, you know, these inspired writers were, quote, still only human and, quote, got some stuff dead wrong. So, yes, our spiritual ancestors were, quote, were ahead of their time in many ways and pooled their wisdom together for the benefit of society, but they also never thought of many of the questions that we have to deal with, unquote. So they had their opinions, and that's what we have in Scripture, according to this view. It's it's some, it's some wisdom, some good opinions, but you can take it or you can leave it. You can put it up to the, uh, the court of your reason and your judgment and, and modern-day assessment and decide what you keep and, and what you don't keep. Compare that with the attitude that Paul makes when he talks to believers in Thessalonica. This is in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13-14. Paul writes, And we also... Thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So you see this, he says, this is not just our advice, this is not just our opinion, it is the word of God. So when we talk about the authority of scripture, what we mean is that Everything that Scripture teaches or commands, everything, has God's authority because Scripture is God's Word. And when we talk about the Bible as, as God's Word or the Word of God, we say that sometimes we just think, oh, that means Bible. No, really, we are saying that very literally, that the Bible is God's Word. This is God speaking. This is God communicating. And whether if God spoke to you through a voice from the sky, or he spoke to you by, by sending you a letter, and here it is. it is, it carries the same authority. This is God's word. This is God speaking. And if it is God, it has the authority of God. And nobody has more authority than he does. He is the creator. He is the author. He is the king. He is all this. He is the one that we, we bend the knee to. And if you don't realize that, then you need to, to, to recognize that he is the one that we owe all our allegiance to. And when we try to do our own thing, that's, that's, that's sin. When we come to him and receive Christ as our, our Savior, and we realize that we need to bend the knee to him and admit he's the one with the ultimate authority over us. And if that's true, that means that if the Bible is God's word, and it is, the Bible has that authority over us. So do you believe the Bible just contains God's word? Or do you believe the Bible is God's word? The correct answer is, it is God's word, all of it. It's not just buried in there once in a while in different places. In fact, the Bible claims to be the word of God around 1,500 times. So we're going to look at just, we only have time to look at 1,000 of these today. <laughs> no, just, I'll take my word for it. You could, well, don't take my word for it. Read your Bibles. You're going to see it over and over again. Thus saith the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It's, it's over and over again. Or it says it directly or indirectly. So many times. One great passage 
is 2 Timothy 3.16. And this is where it says that, uh, this is in the ESV version, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And we see there that this is what, um, some translations translate this as inspired. And so it basically, uh, remember it's not, technically the just the writers of scripture that were inspired as if God gave them some good ideas no it's the actual text so God made sure that the actual words that ended up being written down that these were what were inspired by God not necessarily the not the English version but in the Hebrew and the Greek inspired and we have good translations of those uh, those originals but that's what is inspired by God. And inspired literally means God breathed. So it is, it is coming out of God's mouth. It is his word. It is uh, him speaking to us. So, and this is all scripture. All scripture breathed out by God. And because of this, if it's God's word, his authority, that means that scripture's authority is greater than our feelings. Most people in the world, the feelings is their highest authority. I feel that this means, nope, God's word is greater than our feelings. It's greater than our opinions. God's word is greater than our church traditions, no matter what church you go to, even ours. It is greater than human laws. God's authority is greater than whatever the prevailing wisdom is in the world today or in our culture. God's authority is greater. And because God's word is the literal word of God, and because God never lies, this leads us to our next one that's actually part of the authority of Scripture that includes inerrancy. So on to our third one here, inerrancy. About 40 years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Disaster. And in this book, Francis Schaeffer predicted that inerrancy would be uh, the, the watershed for evangelical Christians. And he went on to define what he meant by, by watershed. And Francis Schaeffer lived uh, in, in Switzerland in the, in the Alps, and he described how not far from his home, there was a place in the, in, uh, in the mountains, there was a ridge covered with snow, and if the snow melted on one side of the ridge, uh, that snow there, when it turned into water drops, would trickle down the mountain, on that side of the mountain, into a stream, eventually joining the, the Rhine River, flowing through Germany, and emptying into the cold waters of the North Sea. However, if the snow melted just a few inches to the other side, on the other side of the mountain, it would, the water droplets would then uh, flow down the other side into the Rhone Valley, into Lake Geneva, and then into the Rhone River, and then into the warm waters of the Mediterranean Sea. Two very different destinations very far away. Even though at first, the snow might seem like it's really close together. That's what a watershed is. Uh, it's the ridge along these uh, mountains where the, the water is going to go either one way or it's going to go the other way. And the point that Francis Schaeffer was making is that within uh, Christianity and even within evangelicalism, there were those that held to the doctrine of inerrancy, that scripture is without error. And there was others that felt not so much. They may give lip service to a high view of scripture, say, well, it, it, it's infallible, but it's not totally inerrant. There could be some errors in it. And he said it might look like these, uh, these two groups, these two sets of Christians are very close together, but give it time, and they're going to end up in two very different places. And that was 40 years ago. And I think we see now uh, how correct Francis Schaeffer was in his prediction here. If Christians, if they have not held to this book being without error, uh, how easy it is then to um, change views on so many things. That the parts that, that we don't like, that we don't agree with, that it's tough to deal with in society in the world today, whether it's with ethics or history or science, we end up in two completely different situations. Inerrancy 
is a teaching that Scripture is without error in all that it teaches. So it means inerrancy. You hear the word error that is in there. So Scripture, authentic Scripture, does not teach anything that is false. Jesus said, John 10.35, Scripture cannot be broken. There are other verses we could look at if we have more time. Uh, But basically, there's a, a logic here that the Bible is God's word, and God does not lie or err, therefore the Bible does not lie or err. That's just, that's how it is, if it is God's word. But someone will say, yeah, but the Bible was also written by human beings. And we know that, as the saying goes, to err is human. Okay, first of all, that phrase, to err is human, that is not a scriptural statement, okay? Um, but scripture, remember, is in a sense... You can compare it to how Jesus Christ was when he came and became fully God and fully man. The scripture is, yes, it is the work of human beings, uh, but it is also the work of the Holy Spirit as the one superintending and editing and, and driving this behind the scenes. And so in the same way that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but the fact that Jesus is fully God kept him from ever sinning or, or erring, Okay, even though he was a human being, in the same way, because the Bible is uh, the word of God, is God-breathed, God keeps us from having any errors that are in it. Even though it is written by, by human beings. Let me clarify a few things. Inerrancy does not mean that our interpretations of the Bible are always perfect. You know, it's still up to us to try and read it and to read it in context. And people can twist it in different directions. People can, can make mistakes. So there's a difference yeah, between what God's word actually says and what we claim that it says. Yeah, so it's our responsibility to, to, to study it, to use uh, the right tools of interpretation so that we're understanding it correctly. Errancy also does not mean that Uh, every copy of the Bible or translation of the original text is perfect, okay? The original manuscripts that were written down by the apostles and the prophets, these are actually called the autographs, that's the technical name for them. Uh, They are uh, inerrant, but they'd be given to, back in the day, you know, maybe uh, monks would copy these. And there could be times where the monks would copy it and they might have a typo in it or something. Uh, now, if that gets you worried, realize the great thing is we have um, over like five and a half thousand ancient copies of the New Testament. And by looking at these and comparing them, if there are uh, small little variations or small little typos or little mistakes, you can compare them against each other. And that's what our Bible manuscripts you know, do. They compare them against each other and realize, okay, this, uh, this monk must have like, you know, uh, kind of nodded off for a moment and repeated a, a line um, these small mistakes, and they're able to, with an amazing degree of accuracy, uh, give us with confidence what the original text actually said. So, inerrancy doesn't mean that there uh, were never any copy errors, uh, but thankfully we have very good copies. We also have very good translations. But it also, inerrancy doesn't mean that our Let's say our English translations, any of them are, are perfect or, or God-breathed. You know, it's the original that is perfect and God-breathed. But our translations are inerrant to the extent that they accurately reflect the originals. And we have good, faithful translations. Uh, most people here have access to, to many of them. If you have a smartphone, you could probably look up several different translations and compare them to each other. Um, and even you could look at the, uh, the originals if you wanted to as well. But inerrancy, it does mean that whatever the Bible affirms as true is true without error. And this is not just limited to the spiritual themes in the Bible. It's not just limited to uh, things about, oh, teaching about God, but you know, when it gets to stuff as far as you know, history or science or... Uh, even modern ethics, you know, that, you know, there can be some errors there. Nope, with it, all the way through. Correctly understood that the Bible is not making any errors or mistakes 
in any of these things. So it includes salvation, it includes ethics, it includes science, it includes history, not just the spiritual themes. In 1978, um, a bunch of uh, prominent um, theologians, such as J.I. Packer and R.C. Sproul and uh, others, got together and they wrote a statement called the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. And if we have more time, or in a Sunday school class, I'd love to just kind of walk through that statement. But it's a very careful description about what inerrancy is, what it means, um, and what it's set against. One of the things that I appreciated in it is it also defines kind of what an error is and what it isn't. I think a lot of people that are sometimes embarrassed by inerrancy sometimes have a, a wrong view of it, and they're rejecting just kind of a, uh, a straw man view of this. Um, but in the Chicago Statement, in Article 13, it talks about several of the things that it says, okay, there's no errors. Here are things that th- realize these are not actual errors. For example, a lack of modern technical precision, um, irregularities in grammar or spelling. Okay, so a name might be spelled two different ways. You know, it, it, it's only been in modern days that people were consistent in how they spelled different names. I mean, even in English, you look up William Tyndale, you're going to find all kinds of different ways that he spelled his name, sometimes by himself. It wasn't a big deal to people, uh, but it was the same person. Um, they would, <clears throat> in Scripture, there's, there's rounded numbers, okay? So if one account says that um, 10,000 people were killed in this battle and the other says that there were uh, 959 people killed in this battle, in the same one, that's not an error. It's just, it, they're just rounding. And that's, that's not a mistake. That's just how we normally speak. Sometimes we round things. We also sometimes use hyperbole. Uh, we sometimes uh, use observational descriptions of nature. If the Bible talks about the sun rise, that's not an error because, oh, you know, the sun doesn't really rise. The earth turns around. Yeah, but from our perspective, that's what it's saying. Okay, so there's, uh, different things that it says these are not actually errors. Um, using free citations, sometimes they group materials in the gospel in according to theme rather than strict chronology. And I thought that's really helpful. But as far as actual errors, there, there aren't any. If they appear like there are, if they appear like they're contradictions, uh, there's usually an explanation for them that can be very apparent. Or sometimes maybe we don't know exactly what it is, but there's a lot of different possibilities. So we should always assume that the, we don't understand something, the problem is with us, it's with our limitations, it's not with the Word of God. I do want to say, too, there are some Christians that will say they believe in infallibility, but they don't believe in inerrancy. And so you just need to be aware of that, because there are even uh, schools and seminaries and different places that will say, well, yeah, we, we have a high view of Scripture, we believe in infallibility, but they, but they don't want to say inerrancy. And so in some ways, inerrancy has become kind of a, a, a shibboleth, kind of a word that it, it gets stuck in some people's throats. They don't want to say it because they don't really believe it. But instead, what has happened is that in about the 1970s, inerrancy, or, well, when the inerrancy was being debated, uh, some institutions and scholars kind of, re- they redefined infallibility. They're thinking, what's the difference? Inerrant, infallible, doesn't that kind of mean the same thing? Well, yeah, it used to, and it did. If you think of Scripture is infallible, we would believe it does. That means it does not fail. Okay, it always uh, tells the truth. It doesn't, it never fails to tell the truth. And so as part of that, it is without error. And so the older theologians, when they would talk about infallibility, uh, they meant as part of that what we would call inerrancy. It doesn't make mistakes. But what happened with some of these uh, institutions and scholars, they redefined infallibility. So this happened in a, a Fuller Seminary with uh, two scholars, Rogers and McKim. And they redefined infallibility to mean that, that Scripture never fails in leading us to Jesus. Okay? So it, it gets us there, it gets us to the main thing, but it may have some mistakes in history or science or some of these other details. But they say, but it's infallible and it, it gets us to the Lord. 
Okay, it, it does get us to the Lord, but more than that, it, it gets us to all the truth that it intends to communicate. So, it's a shame that that word uh, infallibility by some has been redefined and watered down. And of course, if you say that, it's like, well, what parts are you saying? Usually it's the parts that people are embarrassed by in one way or another. But I believe in inerrancy because it is God's word. And I believe in inerrancy because Jesus believed in inerrancy too. Let's go on. Here's the one that maybe is not as readily apparent to us. We don't use the word perspicuity all the time. What does this mean? As I said, it, it doesn't mean the, the sweatiness of Scripture. This is not perspiration. Perspicuity means clarity. That's what it means. You say, well, Pastor, why don't you just use the word clarity? I realize it's kind of ironic. I use a word that's not very clear uh, <laughs> to define the Bible being clear. But hey, sometimes it's good to learn the big words too. But if you really want to, okay, you could change it in your, in your bulletin and cross out perspicuity, and you could write in there clarity. Just Spain, the acronym doesn't work anymore, so just warning you there. But you could change it. You could do iScan or Incas if you want to use clarity instead. Perspicuity or clarity means that the main teachings of Scripture are clear and able to be understood by ordinary believers. This one's a big deal too. Every one of these is a huge deal. Every one of these, think about what it means if you don't believe this. If you believe, yeah, Scripture's not really clear. You know what? Ordinarily, I can't understand this. I need, I need somebody to tell me. I need some special, um, I'm beholden to some special, uh, you know, a, a pastor or some special authority. Better tell me what to believe. J.I. Packer once wrote, if I were the devil... One of my first aims would be to stop folk from digging into the Bible. Knowing that it is the word of God, teaching men to know and love and serve the God of the word, I should do all that I could to surround it with the spiritual equivalent of pits, thorns, hedges, and man traps to frighten people off. How would I do this? Well, I should try to distract all clergy from preaching and teaching the Bible, and spread the feeling that to study this ancient book directly is, an, is a burdensome extra which modern Christians can forego without loss. I should broadcast doubts about the truth and relevance and good sense and straightforwardness of the Bible. And if any still insist on reading it, I should lure them into assuming that the benefit of the practice lies in the noble and tranquil feelings evoked by it rather than in noting what Scripture actually says. At all costs, I should want to keep them from using their minds in a disciplined way to get the measure of its message. Perspicuity teaches us that when we use our minds in a disciplined way, we can get the understanding of what Scripture tells us. So the, one of the lies of the devil is that the Bible is too complicated to be understood by ordinary believers. And don't bother. This is, it's a riddle, it's an enigma. You're never going to be able to figure this out. If you feel that way, that's, that's Satan talking to you. He's trying to get you to believe this, to just not even bother dealing with this. And one passage that makes it really clear that this is not God's view of this, think of God's commands to parents in Deuteronomy 6, 6-7. Okay, this is talking to, remember, this is not talking to the priests, this is not talking to the Old Testament prophets or the, the spiritual elite. But in this passage, it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Okay, so parents, we're supposed to have these words on our hearts. And then what? And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise. Now, if God is telling all parents to be doing this, to know this word and to communicate it to their children, this means that guess what? Parents can understand this. You know what this means? That means children can understand this. And we have to look at it, we have to read it, we have to try our best to understand it, but we can understand it. 
The Bible is meant to be read. It's meant to be understood. It's written in that way. And also for us, the Holy Spirit helps us with this too. He illuminates it to us. He gives us help that we need. This means that it is a, a lie that you need some kind of special teachers in order for you to understand God's word. In the early church, there was those that are called the Gnostics. The word means wisdom. They believed they had this special knowledge and wisdom from God. And if you came to them, they would teach you the, the secret hidden meanings in God's word. And so the New Testament writers, as the, these Gnostics were starting to form, or people with that type of uh, belief, they had to let them know that, no, this is not the case. You're not beholden to them. John wrote in 1 John 2, 27, he says, but the anointing you have received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But his anointing teaches you about everything and is true. Now that does not mean that teachers are not useful. Okay? It is, it is good to have that and I, I hope that uh, Pastor Nick and I are serving you well. I hope that your Sunday school teachers are serving you well. I hope that you are serving each other well as you have discussion and Bible studies. But what it means is that this is not a closed book to you unless Pastor Nick or I decide we want to, want to give you some crumbs from this. That we have some kind of secret knowledge of this. That you, you common people, you, you normal people, you, you peasants could never understand if it was not for us. And so you better make sure you're beholden to us in our infinite wisdom. No, this means that everyone can understand this. And we want you to. This is our goal. We want you to know this word. We want you to be in it for yourself and, and understanding what God says to you. The, the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture does not mean that nothing is difficult. Yeah, there are difficult parts. It does not mean that we'll understand everything automatically. Nope, it doesn't. Sometimes you have to work at it. Sometimes we've got to really rub a few brain cells together in order to take a shot at this, or sometimes, you know, use some study tools or, or background things, but, um, you know, there's some people that think, well, unless you know their, their secret background, unless you know their, their special stuff about the, the culture or all this, you have no way. There's some theologians that kind of pretend like, you know, nobody has understood this passage for 2,000 years until I have come along and unlocked the secrets. Really? This also doesn't mean that we're going to understand everything. Um, the Bible is like an ocean, okay? The ocean, there's parts that are so deep that, you know, uh, the, the best minds and scholars in hundreds of years would never get to the bottom of it. But the ocean also has places where a toddler can get in there and have a great time. In the same way, no matter where you're at in your spiritual walk, you know, the Bible is there. There's always more, but we're able to be in it. We're able to learn from it. The person Pecuity of Scripture means that it's true, especially of the most important things. God, the gospel. Yeah, there's other issues that are, are debatable. Um, but it's clear on the most important things. When it comes to controversial issues, and this is why this is important, there's a lot of people that will say, well, we just don't know. You know, the Bible, you know, it's, it's unclear. This matter of ethics or sexuality or whatever it is I don't like, yeah, the Bible's not clear. You know, and there's scholars that say all kinds of different things. And there's articles on the internet. And so who, who really knows? And so the view then is, well, you can't really know, so pick what you like the best. Because God's so unclear. You know, God just, he just couldn't get his point across. He just, he, he's, he must be a poor communicator. And I think that's a question you need to ask yourself. Do you believe that God is a poor communicator? Most of us, when you sit down for lunch, and you say a sentence to the person across the table from you, you're going to assume that they can understand what you are saying to them. But yet, sometimes people pretend that we just can't understand what God is saying to us when he tells us clear things in the scripture. We think that we're better communicators than God. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we have our limitations. But God is the author of all this, and if he wants to get a message across to us, he is capable of doing that through his word and by his grace. The problem is, usually we don't want to hear God. We don't want him to be clear. Because if we can pretend he's not clear, you know, we're like, like kids, 
you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't hear you when you said I was supposed to do the dishes. Wait, wait, what, 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 well, son, Mark Twain said, it isn't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand. Finally, the last one is the sufficiency of Scripture. Sufficiency, this means that the Bible contains everything we need to know to be saved and to live the Christian life. If you were going to go camping and you went to a store to be, to be outfitted for this camping adventure and you were able to get everything that you needed for this trip, then you would be thoroughly equipped. If they didn't have everything you needed and you needed to go somewhere else, you would not be thoroughly equipped. For 2 Timothy, we looked at chapter 16 before. It goes on and it says that the man of God, I'm talking about any, any Christian, may be complete, equipped for every good work. King James says, thoroughly furnished. New King James and NIV, thoroughly equipped. Scripture gives us everything that we need. The sufficiency of Scripture does not mean that God in the Bible tells us everything there is to know about how to change the brakes on your car or how to remove someone's appendix. That's not the point. However, it does mean that everything that we need to know about God, salvation, and the Christian life for us today is found in Scripture. And this means that we don't have to look to, for example, someone's very doubtful trip to heaven where they encountered all these new revelations and wrote about it in their, their best-selling book. It means that we don't need to try to get a, a secret glimpse behind the curtain into something else to get some secret knowledge. It means that we shouldn't be looking for some spiritual shortcuts to other things that are not in the Bible. There's no divinely inspired cliff notes to Scripture. There are no deleted scenes. Okay, we don't have to feel like there's got to be something more that's out there. Okay, we have plenty to deal with here. And this book is, right now, the canon is closed. God has given us, for the church age, everything that we need for, for this era, this dispensation until Christ returns. Everything. If you had an answering machine back in the day, and you come home, you press it, and you hear, no new messages. Okay? No new messages. We have everything already that God intends for us for this era. Necessity means that we need all the scripture we have. Sufficiency means that we have all the scripture that we need. The London Baptist Confession puts it this way, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. In other words, it says everything that we need for salvation in the Christian life. Revelation was given as, it, as we call it progressive revelation, but that is finished. We have all that we need. So this means don't add to God's word. Don't add to it with new scriptures. Some of the cults do that. I got this new thing. Look, it's the Book of Mormon. Look, it's something else. You didn't, you didn't have this extra thing. Or new revelations, new message from God, new prophecies. I got something else for you. Guess what? This is exciting. Or man-made traditions. Sometimes, you know, we wouldn't claim any of these others, but sometimes we let our traditions basically take the same level as Scripture. We need to make sure we're not doing that either. We believe in what's called sola scriptura, Scripture alone. This means that the Scriptures alone are the sole infallible rule of faith. There's not anything else. It's, it's scripture. Now with this, I mentioned next week, uh, we're going to start talking about in chapter 2 about false teachings. It's going to be really interesting. But keep this in mind because we think of what scripture is and what it, what it is actually like. Realize that if you deny any of these five truths, if you deny any of these, it becomes fertile ground, fertile soil for false teachings. And how often almost any false teaching or cult or whatever can be traced back to denying one of these five things. If you deny necessity, Scripture isn't needed. We can trust in human reason instead. We can be rationalists. 
we can trust in uh, these different you know, methods and uh, what we think is best. The authority of Scripture. Scripture isn't the final word. Did God really say? We deny the inerrancy. So, well, Scripture isn't 100% correct. Maybe it's mostly, but, you know, this little part I disagree with, maybe that's the, the 1% of error. Perspicuity. Well, the Bible isn't clear on this, you know, so who knows for sure. Or sufficiency. Bible isn't enough. Need something else added to this. The truth, though, is that Scripture is the Word of God. If you believe these five attributes, you will be set firm in the knowledge of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that, God, that you are a God that has spoken. And God, you created us. And you know us even in our, our falling condition. And God, you are capable of getting your truth across. And so we thank you, that, again, that you are a God that has not remained silent. You are a God that has not remained hidden. But you have spoken to us. Lord, there's so much more we'd want to know and you will tell us one day. But Lord, we believe that you have given us everything that we need for this time period. Everything that we need now for, for our, our life and godliness, for doctrine, for faith, for, for everything in life, you have set down and put into, into words that are inspired. And we thank you that we have these in the Bible, Lord. Let us trust what you say. Let us believe what you say in the word of God, that this is you, this is your authority. We need it. It is authoritative. It is without error because you do not lie. You do not make mistakes. You are a clear communicator, God, and you've given us everything that we need. We praise you. Work in our hearts to help us to see it, to believe it, and to live it out for your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.